Right, church family, let's bow our hearts together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day and for this time of year when we can specially point our attention towards Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are Lord at thy birth. Thou art the King of glory, O Christ. Thou art the everlasting Son of the Father. When thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, thou didst not abhor the virgin's womb. We thank you, Lord, for this truth, and we pray that this morning our hearts would be ever more convinced that our lives would be shaped and conformed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, born on that Christmas day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at the prologue to John's gospel. That's what these few verses are called. But as you're turning there, um, how many of you have been to Christmas parties so far? Yeah, most of the Christmas parties are sort of out of the way now as we head into the busiest part of the Christmas season. And perhaps you've had this common experience. You're at a Christmas party, you know most of the people there, but you don't know some of them. And so over the course of the evening, you end up meeting them, you end up talking to them, and then the inevitable question comes up. You know the question, right? They ask, what do you do? And they're asking what you do for a vocation or for a career, but that's not really what they're trying to get at, right? No one's actually that interested in how you spend eight hours of your day and how you get paid and pay your bills. That's not what it's about. They ask the question, what do you do, so that they can gain some insight into who you are. That's right, who you are. At a deeper level, this question of what do you do is actually the question, who are you? And maybe that's fair. We invest so much of our time and so much of our energy and bandwidth and spirit in our careers that in some ways we are what we do, right? Maybe in some ways. But I want to pause this morning and just consider something more deeply. That question, who are you? How would you answer that this morning? Well, when I think about who I am, I always start with, you know, I am a son, I am a husband, I am a father, right? When I think about who I am, I, I begin it in terms of my family. Seems like a reasonable place to start. When I think about my identity, I always ground it in this truth. I am the son of Ray and Cynthia Glenn, and what a great privilege and honor and blessing that is. You know, this launches me on a trajectory of self identity that begins with gratitude because everything in my life is grace. Most of the good things about my life, number one, I don't deserve, and number two, I did nothing to shape. I was just born into this wonderful family. It's my identity. Can't take any credit for it. How would you identify yourself? Well, our passage this morning, this Christmas passage, roots the Christian man and woman's identity in family. Did you hear it? But it was in another type of family. We, at least once a year, think about Christmas. We think about the incarnation of God, that God was veiled in flesh in the manger in Bethlehem. 
And we often consider this truth um, from many different angles, right? We're thinking about what are the different truths that we can pull out of the incarnation. We think about what are the different ends that God accomplished in becoming man. And when we do so, it's like we are looking at a gem, and we're looking at that gem and examining its different facets, this incarnational gem, this truth. These different facets that refract the light and create beauty in so many different ways. And so this morning, as we're heading toward Christmas, there are so many different things that we could glean from the truth of the incarnation, that God was veiled in flesh, that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. But this morning, I just want to pull one. I want us to park for the next few minutes on this truth. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the flow of the logic of this verse that we're going to work towards and out of this morning. Receive him. That baby born in a manger, God in human flesh, receive him, believe in his name, become children of God. Well, there's so much that we could draw out of John's prologue, but I want to focus just on verses 9 to 13. So let's begin in verse 9 with some background. John sets out this as the starting point for Christmas. That Christmas is light coming into a dark world. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. That's how John begins to describe Christmas in this, in this verse. That it was like light shining into oppressive darkness. And you know, friends, I think that's a really important place to start. If we don't ground the incarnation and the Christmas reality in this truth, we run the risk of superficial sentimentality and that dominating our Christmas understanding. If Christmas is all just about joys and, and all the happy moments and somehow in some abstract way the idea of God came to the idea of man and somehow that may mean something in the archetype, well, that doesn't mean anything. But the truth of Christmas is grounded in this. That God coming to man was like light, true light, shining in darkness. The imagery that I think of and that comes to mind is that of a tiny little candle in an oppressively dark room. Have you ever marveled at how even just the smallest amount of light can dispel the greatest darkness? I come in early on Sunday mornings, and one of the very first things that I do while it's still dark is I, I make my way in, I start my coffee, I then unlock the doors, and then I come in here into the nave through that door, and it's pitch black. And so what I do is I reach into my pocket, and I pull out my iPhone, and I turn on the light. Not because I'm scared of the dark, well, maybe a little, but I turn on the light, 
And in that moment, that tiny little light, it's about this big, just poof, dispels the darkness. Well, that's what John wants you to think about when you think about Christmas. That in that moment, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And I think that's good news for us today because in different ways and to different degrees, Christmas can come to us in the midst of darkness. You know, Christmas is that one day of the year that collects all of the reality from the previous 364. Do you know what I mean? All of the reality of the rest of the year comes to bear on that one day and that one season at Christmas time. So if you've had a, a year that was marked by low-grade loneliness, perhaps Christmas to you feels like the darkness of being alone. Or if sometime over the last year you've lost a loved one and you've been dealing with the ebb and flow of grief over the last weeks and months, well, perhaps Christmas to you feels like the darkness of grief. And it's into that darkness that the true light of the world shines. Friend, the darker the night, the brighter the light seems. And so is it possible that even the darkness, the the grief, the loneliness, the sadness that you might be carrying with you at this time of year, even that serves the glory of God in the appearance of Jesus Christ. Christmas is light coming to a dark world. That's verse 9. And so John is reflecting on that first Christmas when the true light came to the world. And he says there were two tragedies that occurred back then. Did you see them in verses 10 and 11? Look at the first one. Because these tragedies that were true on that first Christmas at the Incarnation, are still somewhat true today. So let's take a moment, look at them. First tragedy, verse 10. The true light which gives light to everyone comes to the the world, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. What a tragedy. I was trying to think of what this might be like, and you know, it's a silly analogy, but the only one I could come up with is, it would be like if Walt Disney was walking down the street of Main Street at Disney World, and nobody even knew who he was, right? No one even knew him. Well, perhaps you know people like this today, people who will to not know Jesus Christ. They live their lives in determined ignorance. Everywhere they are surrounded on all sides by signs that are pointing them to Jesus Christ. Christ has come to them in countless ways, but they never know him. Maybe you would say that that's you yourself. And so for you this year, Christmas offers a moment for you to stop and consider, have I not known him? Have I been 
so tied up in the day-to-day, you know, whether it's hobbies or career or family or good things, have I been so actively tied up in those things that it's as though I've lived my entire life with blinders on, he's come to me, and I did not even know him. The goodness and the grace of God has come to me. It surrounds me. Everything in my life points me to the reality of a Savior. And yet I've lived my life willfully not knowing him. Not outright rejecting him. We're going to get to that in a moment. But this not knowing, it's something that's a little softer, right? It's, it's a little bit more passive. And so I think it's a potential threat, particularly to a room full of polite Canadians. You see, this concern of not knowing him is a warning to every lukewarm cultural Christian. Friend, you can be a really, really good person. You can volunteer at the food bank. You can come to church every Sunday. You can do all the right things and never know him. The true light came to the world, and the world didn't know him. What a tragedy. So this morning, in the face of this first warning in verse 10, the question is, do you know him? The second tragedy in verse 11, it says, That he came to his own, and his own people did not, what? Receive him. So, the true light of the world comes, the world that he created doesn't know him, and the subset of his people that he came to, they didn't receive him. You see how it sort of ramps up. It goes from this passive, soft sense of not knowing to an active, outright rejection. No thank you. This reaction to the coming of the light of the world is easier to spot because it's so much more severe than just the passive not knowing. If the first tragedy is summed up by, I never even knew him, the second tragedy in verse 11 is summed up by the words, I knew him, but I wanted nothing to do with him. I rejected him. I didn't receive him. Now, in fact, very few will ever actually say it that clearly. We're far too polite. We are more likely to be like Jesus' audience when he was first born. Those people that were his own that received him not. You see, the people that were his own, who were they? Who were they? They were the Jews. They were those people who were religious in their day. They had an entire religious framework of following the Torah as closely and as literally as they could. And so they would have claimed, I know God. Right? That's what they would have said. But consider the absurdity. These people who claim to have known God, when God comes to them in human flesh, in the babe in the manger, they're like, nah. Reject them. You know, friend, that's perhaps a caution for us to 
For any of us who think that we know better than God, right? We have very neat, tidy boxes that God fits into, or maybe we have heard the gospel message so many times that it becomes wearisome and tiresome to us, and so we reject, we don't receive him when he comes to us. We claim to know how God works better than Jesus. This would be people who have religious observance but still reject the Son. What Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he described people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Although I don't think anyone in this room would outright reject Jesus Christ, right? You wouldn't say those words. Consider the ways that you have lost faith and trust in him and you've turned to other stories, other narratives, other saviors. In fact, what you're doing is receiving him not. These are the two tragedies of the first Christmas that those who he came to did not know him. That even his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. Look at verse 12. But here's the purpose of Christmas. Okay, the light comes. The world doesn't know him. His own people do not receive him. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see that? Receive. Believe. Become. There's two points that I want to pull out of verses 12 and 13. The first one is that as Christmas comes to you, as Christ comes to you, he does so so that you will have the right to be children of God. Now, I don't want to drill too much and make too much out of semantics and words, but I think this is really important. Did you notice that in verse 12, it doesn't say that to those who receive him and believe in him, they get to be called children of God? They get to think of themselves as children of God? What does it say? To those who received him and believed in him, to him, to them, they gave the right to be Come, children of God. This means that in Christmas, it's more than just rearranging our mental furniture and thinking more clearly about ourselves and about God. It means that in Christmas, God coming to us in human flesh, something deep and real and profound, something ontological has happened to our very being. We are now children of God. It means that back before you believed and received, your entire self and your identity was wrapped up in your sin and your failure. It was wrapped up in the patterns of behavior that destroyed yourself, offended others, and offended a holy God. It means that before your life was defined by your family of origin and its patterns of dealing with things, 
But now, you're children of God. You know, friend, this is a consistent picture throughout the New Testament, this before and after. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, do you know? New creation. It says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. In Romans, when Paul talks about it, he says, you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is what John is getting at, this same principle. That to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're no longer the person you used to be. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis captured this. He said, he's talking about Christmas. And he said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. You see, that's Christmas. Verse 12, it's the reality of who we are. And the more we live into this reality, the more we live out of it, our thinking becomes clear and our lives become clear. Every single person who was ever created is a creature of the Creator. Not all are children of God. But to all who receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. This is Christmas. Receive, believe, become. That's the first thing I want us to pull out of verses 12 and 13. The second thing, you might hear that this morning, receive, believe, and become, and you think, gosh, R.D., I just, I don't think I can do it. I lived my entire life in one particular way. The thought of completely and radically changing the way that I think and believe, the way that I am, that's too tall a task for me. I can't do it. Look at Verse 13, he says of these people that they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John's describing this reality for us who are Christians, and, and he paints it in these, in these words. He says, it's as though... When you come to believe in him as the son of God, when you look at Jesus in the manger by faith, it's as though you have been born again into a new life. And you can't cause yourself to be born or reborn. And so this is how you don't lose heart at Christmas. I think this is an often overlooked passage that um, pardon me while I geek out for a second, but I think this passage actually illuminates and elucidates soteriology. Amen? Okay, let me explain what I mean. When you consider how is it that you are saved, okay, when you think about am I saved and can I know it, these two verses are going to tell you how. Here's what it tells me. Verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become the children of God. Every single person who's a Christian can remember with clarity and confidence a time in their life where they declared that Jesus Christ was their Lord. From their perspective, it would appear that they chose him at that moment. You know, I was raised in a church where we used to sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. Do you guys know that one? And in one sense, it's absolutely true, right? Verse 12, to all who received him, who believed in his name. But then as you begin to look back on that moment, you see the, verse, the truth of verse 13. That the very receiving and believing that you professed was not what made you a child of God. It was evidence that God had willed it for you. And so when you receive him, when you believe in him, this is rock-solid assurance that he has caused you to be a child of God. Not born of human flesh, not born of human blood, not born by human will or agency, but by the will of God. And so this means, friend, that this Christmas, if you have even the slightest flicker of Christian faith, if you have even the littlest bit of desire to want to receive and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. That's evidence that God is at work in you, causing you to become a child of God. Now, this is not a point for theological debate. It's cause to rejoice. Christmas means that God has come to us as light and darkness. Some people are going to choose to remain in the darkness, we're told. They won't know him. They'll reject him. But if you have even the slightest inclination towards wanting to receive and believe in the babe in the manger, take heart. God has caused that. And that is the evidence that you've been born again. And so belief in the Son is your confidence and assurance that you are a son of God. Christmas fundamentally and radically changes the way you see yourself because it changes who you are. You are now children of God. That's your identity. You're no longer defined by sin by failure, but you are defined by the will of God as a child of God. So receive, believe, and become.